0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Lord, it only seems fitting to stand before you and to recognize that we are in the presence of the living God. In the presence of royalty, we make our voices known in one accord as we are remembering those who died 10 years ago and also remembering those who continue to wage the battle overseas to defend our freedoms. We pray that you might comfort and would those who are left behind, family members. We pray that you would protect those who are serving and we pray that they would be brought home safely and securely and swiftly. Lord, thank you that we not only live in the nation we live in, but thank you that we are blessed because we have the truth of Scripture. And we look to the sure word to help us to understand and frame that you're a God that cares about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. You remember exactly where you were ten years ago. Um, Ninety-seven percent of Americans say they know exactly where they were and what they were doing on September 11th when they heard the news. It's been called a defining moment in American history. Sort of like what happened to a previous generation, December 7th, 1941, as the president then said, it was a day that will live in infamy. A defining moment because in 1941 the event of Pearl Harbor drew us into a war, the Second World War. September 11th was a defining moment because it drew us into a different kind of a battle called the War on Terror. I remember September 11th in a number of different ways. I remember the moment, the days and the few weeks afterwards, I remember what it did to our country. It was like a holy hush fell upon everyone. And for that moment, for those few days and few weeks, for that horrible and yet wonderful moment, churches were packed full of people. People were on their knees seeking God. You remember probably members of Congress, those from the House and Senate, all standing on the steps together singing, God Bless America. And for that moment, nothing else was important. Politics weren't important. Entertainment wasn't important. Personal problems weren't even as important. September 11th reminded me of something I read by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote about the Spanish Civil War. And that pastor, being once a medical doctor said it was an interesting time in their history because during that time, or before that time, in Barcelona, Spain, and in Madrid, there were psychiatric clinics filled with patients who were getting weekly regular treatments for whatever problems, anxieties that they were facing. He said, as soon as the Spanish Civil War began, the most amazing thing is that all of those psychiatric clinics were emptied. Almost instantaneously. Because now there was a greater anxiety. People really didn't care about their personal anxieties and problems as much as this greater anxiety were at war. Will I still have a house to come home to? Will I have a husband that will come home? Will I have a son that will survive this? And the point that Jones was making is that greater anxieties cure lesser anxieties. On September 11th, America was cured of many lesser anxieties because now we had this huge anxiety called terror. And questions like, is this going to happen again? And who did this? And why would they do this? And why is it that people hate us this much? It was a wake-up call on a number of levels for Americans. Those of us who love God and know God It brought many questions to our minds. People were asking, why would God let this happen? Does God care what happens? I thought it appropriate to be reminded on the anniversary of September 11th about one of the greatest promises ever found in Scripture, and that is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's a single verse, but it is a monumental statement. It's a sweeping statement. It's like a grand canyon, the vistas of which are from eternity past to eternity future. I stole the title for this morning's message. It was the late great Dr. R.A. Torrey who called Romans 8.28 a soft pillow for a tired heart, and I confess I have laid my heart many times. On this verse, when there was nothing else to pull out, there was still that net of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Someone put it this way, if the whole of scripture were a feast for the soul, then Romans 8 would be the main dish. And I would add to that and say the choice entree would be the 28th verse. Now, we're going to go into this verse, and it's a short 25 words, but it demands our careful attention, so we're going to sort of unpack it and pick it apart phrase by phrase. But if you don't mind, allow me to bring you up to speed and tell you what the book of Romans has been about so you get the impact. The theme of this book is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul is writing about. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Christ. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul says the entire world is unrighteous and stands condemned before God. Jew, Gentile, moralist, non-moralist, all are condemned, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. Then we have chapter 4 and 5 and says though the world is all unrighteous, They can all be made righteous by a simple faith in Christ, an act of God's grace through faith. And the example in those chapters is Abraham, who believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Then we have chapters 6, 7, and 8, in which Paul says, If that is true, that we are not saved by anything but an act of faith by God's grace, then the law of Moses, the old covenant, can't help us at all. In fact, in many ways, it hinders us. Then Paul brings us up to this final culmination, this final mountain peak, where he looks over the vista of God's providential love and care. And we begin in verse 28, and we'll read a few more verses to get that context. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? We want to confine ourselves this morning really to the 28th verse, Romans 8, 28, one of your favorite, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And again, we want to look at it from the perspective of God's care. And it begins with the certainty of God's care. Notice that Paul says, And we know. The Christian life is filled with certainty. There's a definiteness in that. We know. Not we just hope or we think we know. I like that. And Paul liked that. 32 times in his letters, Paul uses the phrase, And we know. Five times in the book of Romans. Now, having said that, there's a lot of things we don't know. In fact, I would say the whole Christian life is like this tension between what we know and what we don't know. And we're going through life going, "Okay, I know this. I don't know that. I I, I thought I knew this, but I, I don't know. And we're dealing with that tension. For example, verse 26 of Romans 8 says we don't always know what we should pray for like we should. I've I've been there. I've been in a situation. I thought, "I, I don't exactly know what to say. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to approach this. We don't always know why things happen the way they happen or why God would allow them to happen. We're puzzled. We don't know. An example came to my mind this week that sort of fits in here. There was a prophet in the Old Testament named Habakkuk. Ever heard of that name, Habakkuk? It's a little book in the Minor Prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Now Habakkuk was a righteous man, and he calls on God, and he says basically, Look, God, look at this nation, your nation, the people of Israel. We're a wicked nation. And how come you just let us go by and, and do nothing to judge us and, and bring righteousness? He was living in a nation that had forsaken God. And here's the kicker. A few years before that, there was a big revival, And now they were going back to their old ways of life. And so the prophet is saying, How long, God, are you going to let this go on? Do something to correct us. So God speaks to him and says, Well, actually, I am doing something. And if you knew what I was doing, your ears would tingle. I'm doing, and I'm going to work a work in your days that even if I told you, you'd have a hard time with it. Well, what is it? And so God told him, I'm going to bring a nation more wicked than you, the Babylonians, from Iraq, and they're going to come in and destroy your nation. And I'm going to spank you by using them. Well, now the prophet becomes totally unraveled. It's like, uh, I, I sort of take my the first prayer back a little bit. I mean, okay, we're, we're bad, but they're like really bad. So why would you use somebody really bad to spank those of us who aren't as bad as them? God says, don't worry, I'll I'll take care of them as well. But here's a guy going, I don't know why God would allow that. But listen carefully. Never abandon what you know for the things you don't know. I know people that will walk away from God, walk away from church, because they just can't answer all the mysteries of the universe. There's so many things I don't know. Those are the times you cling to those that you do know. And one of the things Paul knew was that there was an all-loving, caring, working God behind the scenes. A lot of people after 9-11 were fearful for their lives. I remember some still are. They were asking questions like, will there be another attack? When will the next attack be? Where will it come from? We were very uncertain about that. What about the future of my child? Now, I can't I can't tell a person it's not going to happen again. Because first of all, we're not dealing with a nation anymore in this war on terror, are we? We can't even focus our fears. We're dealing with individuals or, or factious little groups that organize behind the scenes and bring in people from different places in different countries. And on top of that, we're dealing with a theology that according to them would, if they commit an act of terror, would catapult them directly into heaven because of it. So it's very, very uncertain waters that we're navigating. But we can still rest our head on the pillow of God's care. We know saved souls are confident souls, persuaded souls. Look at the next little phrase. And we know that all things... This is the comprehensive nature of it. This is how wide and how big God's care is. We know that all things work together. I can't think of a statement that brings more comfort, more joy, and more assurance to the Christian than that. Now, notice notice what it does not say. It does not say, And we know that God causes all things. God doesn't cause all things. He does permit all things, but it's a different statement to say He causes all things. No, He doesn't. There's a lot of evil. The Bible says God is not the author of evil, He doesn't cause it. The reason He permits it is because He permits people to choose, and He honors the choice, even if they're dumb choices, even if they're sinful choices. Notice it does not say all things are good in themselves. All things are not good in themselves. There's a lot of things that are wrong and evil and bad in themselves. So it doesn't say all things are good. That would be an absurd statement, especially in the light of natural catastrophe and human atrocity. Notice also it does not say that God will keep us from all the bad things. Can you imagine how many false conversions there would be to Christ if that were the case? It'd be Every unbeliever would jump ship and want to become a Christian because, hey, I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and live a perfect life, and there's not going to be any trouble, and there's always going to be health, and always going to be prosperity. People would follow for all the wrong reasons. Something else you should notice that it doesn't say. He doesn't say, and we know that some things work together for good. It would be a lot easier for us to believe it if we did see that here written. It doesn't say some things. It doesn't say most things. It doesn't say all good things work together for good. Nor does it say all prayed about things. It says all things. Panta is the Greek word. Panta, all things. You know what it means in Greek, all things? It means all things. (laughs) There's no limitation. There's no restriction. There's no confinement. It means... Anything imaginable. In fact, as I look here in just the context of what Paul is writing, I notice in verse 17 that he includes if we suffer with Christ. That would be one of the all things. A few verses down in verse 23 of Romans 8, Paul says we ourselves groan within ourselves as we wait for this final redemption. So all the things that cause us to suffer and groan because we suffer are part of the all things. William Newell, in his book on Romans, said, Dark things, bright things, happy things, sad things, sweet things, bitter things, times of prosperity, and times of adversity. All things. Now, I should tell you something right about here. There are a couple of manuscript differences Net result, it's the same result. But there's another set of manuscripts that make it clearer for us. And I'm going to read this to you in the New American Standard Bible. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So this is what I want you to see. This is a statement of faith, not a statement of fate. It doesn't say, all things for everyone will just all work out fine in the end. It doesn't say that. That's Oprah Winfrey theology. That is not biblical theology. The Bible says there is an all-knowing, all-powerful God who is overruling in all things to bring them together for good. Let's look at the next little phrase. This is now the cohesiveness of all things or of God's care. All things work together. Two words, work together. One word in Greek. Now, I'm going to say the word in Greek. I'm going to tell you what it means in English, and, and you'll go, I, I hear it, I see it. Soon ergeo is the Greek word. That's where we get our word synergy from. Soon ergeo, synergy. And synergy is the working together of various elements to produce results greater than the sum of the elements. That's very helpful to me. God synergizes all things. Good things, bad things, neutral things. God is able to take all of those things synergistically and work them together so that the result is greater than all of the, the sum of all the parts. Here's an example that was helpful to me. A skilled chemist can do this. A skilled chemist can take certain elements that would be poisonous or harmful. And with his skill and with the right combination can make something beneficial. So a classic example. He could take chlorine in its pure form as a poison. Sodium in its pure form as a poison. But mixed together with his skill, with the right temperance. He makes sodium chloride, that's table salt. He can take those poisons and make something beneficial. So picture God as a divine apothecary, a divine chemist. And he is skillfully taking poisonous things that we would say are bad in life, neutral things, good things, and he is synergistically mixing them all together to bring something that is good, healthful, healing. All together. things work together i was thinking of what paul said here as opposed to what a guy in the old testament named jacob once said things were falling apart in jacob's life his son he thought had been killed by wild animals his brothers had sold joseph as a slave to egypt but when he found out that his son died this is what he said all things are against me. And I thought, what a different statement that is than Paul's statement. All things work together for me. Two completely different views of life. I wonder which yours is. All things are against me. All things work together for me. Now this begs the question that was asked, Around 9-11, I remember answering it several times at Ground Zero with families and New Yorkers and Albuquerqueans, etc. afterwards. So if God is so big and so powerful and so loving, why would He allow 9-11 to happen? There's a lot of ways to stay answer that, but let me just sort of answer it at its basic level. Because all people die. Nothing happened to those people that wasn't going to happen to them anyway. Nothing happened to those people that isn't going to happen to me or you. The Bible says in in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed for all men to die once. And after this, the judgment. And even that can be one of the all things that God works together for good. I might get in a car crash, it might be my plane that eventually goes down, might be might be a heart attack for me or CHF like my father when he died, might be cancer for me, might be some other disease, could be a tornado or a hurricane or a tsunami. The issue isn't am I going to die, you are. The issue is you don't have to die and go to hell. And the thing that takes the fear out of the future is faith in the Lord of the future. Paul the Apostle put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, If we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. If that's where our hope lies, just here on earth and physical health and living, we're miserable. We have hope that goes beyond this so that anything, all things bring it on will work together for good. Let's look at those two words for good. This is the culmination of God's care. All things work together for good. It doesn't say for your comfort. It doesn't say for your ease. It doesn't say for your health. It doesn't say for your financial prosperity, it says for your good. And God is always working out your life for the supreme good. And here's the kicker, only God knows what that is. You know what you want, God knows what you need. And He has a definition of good. You may not see it right now. That doesn't look too good to me. But God has good in mind. You see, Christians are never to be naive about this, about human suffering and pain and tragedy and calamity and choice and all the things that we see every day multiplied in this world. Jesus said quite simply and profoundly that the sun and the rain will fall on the godly and the ungodly alike. I've always loved what I read once in Reader's Digest. It was so profound, it was so simple, is that expecting not to be treated badly just because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you because you're a vegetarian. (laughs) The angry bull doesn't care about your culinary desires at that moment. He's just doing what he does and he will attack you. Job put it this way, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes God will calm the storm for His children. Other times God will send His children into the storm and calm His children rather than the storm. But I look back on every trial I've gone through. I don't always get the big picture. I've been through some pretty hefty ones. But I can see, if not the whole picture, at least a glimmer and say... God was there, and he was working for my good. That's why James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trial of your faith produces perseverance. Something good will come out of it. I read a helpful illustration years ago that stuck with me. If you took a $5 bar of steel, so just a little thing worth 5 bucks, if you make it into horseshoes, it's now worth $20. If you make it into needles to sew things with, it's worth $350. If you take that same $5 bar of steel and make it into scalpel blades for surgeons to operate, it's now worth $32,000. And if you take that $5 bar of steel and you make tiny fine springs for watches and and pins, that $5 bar of steel is now worth $250,000 pretty obvious right the application the more it gets beat the more it gets hit the more fire and tribulation and trial that five dollar bar of steel goes through the more good comes out of it God works all things together for good Now, I take you to the fifth and final aspect, and that is the condition of God's care. And that occupies the rest of the verse. It is to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, can you see that that's a limitation? That's a condition? Paul is not saying, now here's a promise that every human being who has ever lived can walk away with and live by. No, no. It's to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, I was looking at this phrase a lot this week. And what I discovered is that is the perfect definition of a Christian. Those who love God, they're called according to his purpose. In fact, it's the definition of a Christian from two different directions. One is from earth and one is from heaven. From an earthly direction, from an earthly perspective, a Christian is somebody who loves God. Oh, look it. He loves the Lord. That's human choice. That's volition. The second phrase describes a Christian from God's perspective. To those who are the called according to his purpose. That's divine election. God calls you. You respond by loving him. And the proof that you're called is that you love God. But it's, it's a beautiful full-orbed description of a believer from uh, an election and a volition standpoint from heaven and from earth. So here's the condition. It's not for everyone. It's for those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. Years ago, there was a family living in Scotland. They loved God. They believed they were called according to God's purpose to leave Scotland to go to America. They saved up money. Father worked hard, had a large family, bought tickets one week before they were to sail. One of the kids got sick. I think bit by a dog. I'd have killed the dog probably if I was that dad. They couldn't go to America. And father was angry as that ship set sail from Liverpool toward America. That man stood out there crying and angry at God. God, we love you. We believe we're called by you. Why would you allow this to happen? Well, he discovered... A few days later on April 15th, why, when his ship that sailed without him, the Titanic, sank in icy waters in that year, 1912. Then he thought very differently about how God answers his prayers and was thankful that God said, you're not getting aboard that ship. For him, all things work together for good. But what about those who were on the Titanic? Certainly there were believers who loved God and were called by God on the Titanic. And yes, for them all things also worked for good because they loved God and were the called according to His purpose. And they entered their eternal glory. Not everyone who died that day did. So here is Paul throughout the book of Romans, climbing the mountain peaks till now he's at the top and he looks over the panorama of God's sovereign providential care and says, there's something I definitely know and that is that God is actively, consistently, and purposefully at work in all things in the lives of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's the promise. Now, you know, there's a lot of examples of this promise throughout the Bible. A few come to mind. The first one is Joseph. Joseph was sold because of jealousy by his brothers to slave traders who went to Egypt. Joseph was put in prison. It wasn't his fault. He didn't commit any crime for two years. It was an evil thing that happened to Joseph. It was a bad thing that happened to Joseph. You know how Joseph looked at it years later? After history took its course and its turns, and now he is the prime minister of Egypt, he said to his brothers, as for you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for what? For good, to save many people alive as it is this day. If Joseph's brother hadn't been sold as a slave unjustly, he never would have gone to Egypt. If he never would have gone to Egypt as a slave, he never would have gone to prison. If he never had gone to prison, he wouldn't interpret the dreams of those who were prisoners. If he hadn't interpreted the dreams of those who were prisoners, Pharaoh wouldn't have found out about it because he had a dream and Joseph was brought before him and he had a plan and he was put in this glorious position. So he looked back and he goes, I didn't get it then, but I get it now. All things work together for good. Here's another example. It's a tougher one, especially for any nation that would presume upon being God's chosen nation and would think that we're just going to skate free into the future. The people of Israel, God's people, were attacked on their soil by Babylon. That's ancient Iraq. Their city was burned. People were butchered in the streets of Jerusalem, killed senselessly, and the rest taken to captivity. The people in captivity were no doubt wondering, God doesn't love us. Does God care about us? He's left us to rot in a foreign country. So Jeremiah writes him a letter on God's behalf. It's recorded in Jeremiah 29. And he tells those people, those captives people, he says, this is God writing, Jeremiah's pen, but God's writing. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. God was thinking good thoughts. God was behind the scene working good things. The final example, I think, is the best of all. The cross of Christ. The crucifixion, from a human perspective, that is the worst crime that could ever be committed. That was the worst blot on the human record possible, to kill God. But from a divine perspective, it was the most glorious event ever. By that one death, people could have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Ten years ago when I went to ground zero, on one particular day as I was going to the pile and doing my work with the Red Cross, a firefighter with tears in his eye, big, big guy, my height but twice the width, came up to me and he was, said, come here. Well, I'm not going to argue with him. There were five of us who didn't argue with him. And he took us into one of the buildings that had collapsed but there was still some infrastructure around and he pointed to a cross. I put the picture that I shot that day on your bulletin, the cross at Ground Zero. He had just found it and he wanted to show it to us. And he goes, let me tell you the story. I've been working in this pile. I've been pulling out bodies and body parts all day long. My spirit is so crushed. I'm so demoralized. And I was just calling out to God. And as soon as I called out to God, I looked up and there in the middle of this pile, I hadn't seen it before, was this cross. And it's on your bulletin. He said, There's a cross. It wasn't put there by any man. It's the result of the falling beams, but it's a cross. To me, he said it was a sign of hope. Tears running down his eyes. And he said, hey, Hold hands. Let's pray. Let's pray that this cross gets preserved. And again, we all gathered and we prayed for that cross at ground zero. But it struck me. Here in this scene of the death, the senseless death of thousands of people, what still gives hope is the death of another one who by His death brings hope. Eternal life. So the defining moment in America in our recent times may be indeed 9-11. But it is not the defining moment in our history of planet Earth. The defining moment was the day Jesus died on the cross. That death brings life. That death still brings hope. Father, we remember, even as we're told to every time we share communion, to remember the great sacrifice Because from heaven's perspective, it was by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And we are recipients of salvation. And thus, hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? We want to end with a song that is familiar to us. It was written a long time ago by Julia Ward Howe. It was an old campfire spiritual, they called it. It was originally called Canaan's Happy Shore. We know it as the battle hymn of the Republic. It became very important in the Civil War. The words are all about Christ and His victory and His sacrifice and His coming. And with that in mind, we sing. My eyes are seen of the coming of the Lord, he is trampling out the vintage weather, raves of wrath, of storm. He is loose, the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword, his true.